Father, we do indeed praise you for your goodness to us. And we delight, Lord. We ask that you cause us to delight even more to make us cheerful givers as we give back to the hand which gives us all good things, Lord. And then use these things for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand, remain standing rather. You're already standing. Acts 17. It's not so long this week that we can't stand. Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul of Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off his way off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was awaiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that this divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray this morning that you would open our eyes to your word to see wonderful things. Cause our ears to hear and do the work that only you can do in our hearts, Lord, to move us beyond where we are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When we look at this passage in Acts 17, uh, you probably see there's the three narratives here are pretty significant. In fact, I think each of these three narratives for most would stand on their own as a sermon. And in most cases, all three of these I've heard have been separate sermons. But once again, we come to this, getting this 30,000 foot view, this flyover view of the book of Acts, and we're going to fly through Acts 17 in the same way that we have been. But this phrase, these men who have turned the world upside down, is one that sticks out. And when we come to it, you know, I think we, we kind of feel like maybe we need to do that, that, that we need to be turning the world upside down. I think that, that's either one of our reactions. The other reaction could just be, I don't know what to do to turn the world upside down and just kind of despair and think that that's not me, that's somebody else. You know, the idea of being countercultural has in a sense, come into fashion a little bit. And I believe it's true that the gospel does produce counterculture. The gospel changes the world. The problem is when we get the cart before the horse and we start attempting to be countercultural and we kind of forget or neglect the gospel. This is a work I think that we will see that not we do, but that God does. And in fact... The, those who accused these men of turning the world upside down were the ones who were jealous. They were the ones who used this phrase that Luke simply recorded. This was not Paul's ambition necessarily to turn the world upside down. But what we see in each of these cases is that when God works, worlds are indeed turned upside down. It's good to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 16 when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, I will build my church, not you will build my church. So the pressure's off. God is going to do this. He will be successful. Notice, secondly, he said, I will build my church. It's not your church. It's his church. It's 
not my church. <laughs> you know, sometimes we can be tempted, not anybody here, but you probably have heard of other people doing this in other churches that say things like, well, I'm a charter member of this church. This is my church. And I give X number of dollars. This is my church. And then people have fights over the color of carpet and the color of pews. And they forget that Jesus said, it is my church and I will build it. And then the last thing, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as we see those charges against, by the, led by the evil one to oppose what God is doing around the world, we need not fear or worry because the gates of hell will indeed not prevail against it. Again, I would say the pressure's off. We proclaim a message. We live in a kingdom. We walk in the ways of the king. We walk in submission to the king, but we walk by the power of the king. We walk by the provision of the king. He is our king. That's how we live. We believe the gospel. We live by the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. And we trust the power of the gospel, which is indeed the power of God into salvation. That's how we live. And in turn, God turns the world around us upside down. It looks different in our own lives as it does in each of these three narratives. And so let's look then at the first one. Paul and Silas have just been in Philippi. They're heading now in verse 1 to Thessalonica. And in verse 2, as it says, as was Paul's custom, we start seeing some repetitiveness here. What does Paul do? Well, he goes into the synagogue. It says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. For three weeks, Paul went back week after week, and no doubt probably during the week had various discussions. And the Jewish tradition in the synagogue on the Sabbath would have been typically at least two readings from the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, and then there would have been some exposition or explanation of this, and this is exactly what Paul does. In verse 3, it states that he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. In other words, Paul was taking them back to their own Scriptures, showing them from the Messianic Psalms. Almost certainly he would have been using the Messianic Psalms. He would have been using the prophecies, prophecies like Isaiah's chapter 52, 53, the suffering servant, to show them, guys, this is what the Messiah looks like. He's not going to ride in on a white stallion, at least not yet. <laughs> the consummation of the kingdom is a little further down the road. He is coming to suffer. He's coming as a suffering servant. And then as he laid that foundation, the foundation then became his argument, to which he then explained that it was Christ, Jesus, who fulfilled all of these scriptures. It was Jesus who was the Messiah, and that was his argument. And it says that he explained, which means to open up, in the same way that Jesus opened up the scriptures on the road to Emmaus, he opened up the word to them, and then finally he proclaimed, he announced the good news, that Jesus died to save sinners. And verse 4 says, Some were persuaded and believed, along with some devout Greeks, including many leading women in Thessalonica. But then, without reading the text, we know what's coming next, right? Because it's happened over and over again. After he preaches, the jealous ones come in, right? And they start to stir up trouble. And in verse 5, we see that that's exactly what they did. Interestingly, in this chapter or this section, they gather a mob of what Luke accounts as wicked men. They set the city in in an uproar. And there's a bit of irony there. They went to Jason's house. That's where Paul and Silas were staying, but they were hiding at the time. They weren't able to find him, so they dragged Jason out into the street And not able to find them, they take Jason before the magistrates. And they said, 
these guys were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that Jesus is king and thus it is treason against Caesar. What were these guys doing? Were these Jews who were protecting their faith based on their convictions to what their scriptures taught? Or were these Jews who, much like I talked about in the terms of being countercultural, when we get that before the gospel, we get things backed up, had these Jews kind of done the same thing with their politics? They were simply using politics to get a hearing before the magistrates. Most Jews didn't care about what the rule was in terms of Caesar and his dignity. But this fit their narrative because they wanted to get these guys thrown out of the city. And that's exactly what they tried to do. The irony, of course, is that the Jews were the ones that hired the rabble. So they go in and they accuse and say, these guys are turning the world upside down, but they were the ones that actually had hired the group to turn the city upside down. It's like setting a house on fire and then blaming somebody else that's doing it. But the other irony is that the world had indeed been turned upside down. As the gospel went forward throughout the world, the kingdom of God was rushing into the villages and into the cities around Asia and now in Europe. People were being freed from the shackles of the law. People were being made whole. They were being seen the, 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 the yoke of the oppression of the law, the yoke of guilt and shame, even without a knowledge of the law, being removed by the grace of Christ. It wasn't the missionaries doing this. It was indeed God doing this. He was turning the world upside down as he was establishing his kingdom on earth through reigning in the hearts and lives of his people. And it's the same way that he does this now. But notice it's the, pri- the primary means that he does this is through his word. Paul was going in and proclaiming the word. He was preaching the word. And so we see in this the power of God's word, what's recorded in Hebrews 4, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is what was changing everything. The means of the Word of God. And this is exactly what we see happen again, but even more clearly in the second passage in Berea. Paul and Silas sneak away by night, and they go to Berea to escape the mob. Verse 10. And Luke writes that they, again, enter the the synagogue this time in Berea. But notice these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why did Luke write this? Well, verse 11, because they received the word with all eagerness. And they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Bereans were students of the scripture. Verse 12, many of them believed. The Bereans are often held up as an example of how we are to know and study the Scriptures, and I think rightly so. And I think it's important to notice what it meant for them to study the Scriptures. This was work. Uh, At this time, they would not have had the personal Bibles that you and I have that can carry around with us. They had scrolls. And even in Jewish custom today, the scrolls are still, um, there's still great regulation used in the copying of the scrolls so that a lot of time goes into it, uh, but they also become worth they're worth a lot of money. If you talk to Messianic congregations that have purchased a, a, a scroll f- to have in their, um, in their church, they'll tell you thousands of dollars they'll spend on these things. So these were worth a lot of money, and there were few of them. And for them to study God's word, they actually had to go to the synagogue and be there. 
They didn't have the Bibles that we have. They certainly didn't have the electronic Bibles that we have that we can just tap a few buttons and get to where we want to go or search or do language study or whatever. So they actually had to put in a lot of work. But as important as that is, I think it's more important to see that they understood the priesthood of all believers. They understood that they did not need a priest to be an intermediary to tell them what God's word said or what it meant. But they themselves were in charge of being good students. All of us as believers have that responsibility. We certainly put a value on the ministerial role, particularly in the PCA, and it's, you know, it's work to become a minister, to be examined, to study, and so forth. But don't be dependent on me to tell you what God's Word says. Benefit maybe from the study that I put into it, certainly. But search the Scriptures yourself. Know the Scriptures yourself. It's not just about knowing the truth. But it's about this is the means, the power that God uses to transform our hearts, to shape the way that we think, to undo the wrong ways that we think. He uses His Word. And we need to be in it, to study it, and to know it. Know also that the Word of God is not a magic book. It doesn't protect us and inform us just by having it. It doesn't work by osmosis, right? If we carry it around, it doesn't get into our hearts and our minds. But rather, as Colossians 3 says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That could be another sermon on its own. Let me just say this, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We not only need to be individually in the Word, but we need to work together corporately in a community. We need to be engaging with one another, hearing from one another, speaking to one another the truth that is in God's Word. And this happens through one-on-one. It happens in small groups. It happens in conversations that we are both speaking biblically to one another, but also being spoken to biblically to be encouraged, but also to be corrected at times, to be exhorted when we get off track. And if you are not a student of God's Word, then you're not able to do this for others, and you are not strengthening the church in the way that you can be. So all of us need to be letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Luke 11, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and obey it. We don't just hear it, but we do it. In John 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's what happens when we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Out of us flow rivers of living water. Do you know who the living water is? Rivers of Jesus flow out of us when we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Why? Because we're speaking his thoughts and His ways when we speak biblically. His thoughts and His ways are not our ways. They're high above our ways. How can we know His thoughts and His ways? Well, He's given that in His Word. And we need to know His Word to know Him. The last section that we come to in Athens, Paul does something different. And maybe that breathes a sigh of relief for all of us because it's not the same thing that we've seen over and over Here's something that's different. It's the same, but it's different. He goes into the town, into Athens, and he goes into the synagogue, but we don't see much happen in the synagogue. We see more happen in the marketplace as he goes out and expands there. And he doesn't do things and speak in the same way, quoting the text directly from the Old Testament, 
but rather he distills it and speaks biblically in a way that pagan people who had no knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures would understand. Before we see that, though, I want us to note one thing. In verse 16, and that is, when Paul goes into the city, how does he react? It says that he was provoked by seeing all the idols in the city. This word for provoked is the same word in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures of of our Old Testament that would have been used to describe God's anger. It's the same word that Luke used to describe the disagreement that Paul and Barnabas had over John Mark. You remember that when they had to separate because they had such a sharp disagreement? It's the same word here. This is the reaction that Paul had. There's a sense of brokenness, brokenheartedness, and anger, righteous anger at what he saw. I remember the first time that I visited the the Western Wall in Jerusalem. The Western Wall is the foundation, part of the foundation of the Second Temple. And it is flat on top. There's no Jewish building on top. There's a Muslim mosque now. So you understand that when Jews come to the Western Wall, what is just over the top of that is this mosque. And so you can understand some of the tension. And so we had visited a number of other historic sites throughout Jerusalem and Israel. And I didn't expect to have any different experience in coming to the Western Wall. But something happened. Something that what I think Paul experienced here, I was just provoked. And I began to cry. I just, it was the embarrassing kind of cry. I had no control over it, and I didn't know why I was crying. I just kept telling Leslie over and over, this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. He's right there in front of you. Jesus is your Messiah, and you're going through all these rituals and going before this wall, praying and reading and thinking somehow that you're still trying to appease the law, and you don't even have a means to atonement. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world and atoned for your sins. And you've missed it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I think this is how Paul felt. And we see both the anger at the paganism of it's not supposed to be this way, as well as the compassion for missing the Creator. He's right there in front of you. And that's what he says to them. And they take him to the Areopagus, which is Greek for Mars Hill. This sits just below the, the Parthenon. When, if you've been to Athens, you know it sticks up above everything else. You see it anywhere you are in the city. You see the Parthenon. Mars Hill is just below this, a pile of rocks, basically now. But there is a plaque there with Paul's sermon today that you can go and read and see it there, which is interesting. The Areopagus was a place for debate, but it was also a place where they kind of tried people, put them, asked them tough questions. And the, the, the text here, no doubt, it says that, that they took him and brought him. Uh, Paul wasn't going um, joyfully, I don't think. I think they had him strong-armed a little bit to take him to explain what he was teaching. And this is what he says uh, but well, let me, let me mention this before we get into the, the, the text. It's interesting to note what Luke adds before he explain, or gives Paul's account of his text, and that is in verse 21, he says, Now the people of Athens and all the foreigners there were into nothing else. They did nothing else with their time but want to discuss things that were new. It kind of sticks out on its own, but when you think about it, there's some real parallels to our own time, isn't there? Then Paul begins his address. And in this address, as I've mentioned, it's not quotes from the Old Testament, 
quotes from Scripture, but rather it's uh, this deep knowledge of Scripture that Paul has, woven through with language that the people could understand, ideas that they could relate to, and even some of their own poetry he quotes. And he begins to explain the gospel. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. They had no basis for understanding anything except what God has revealed through general revelation. And so Paul goes back to the beginning, to creation, to explain that there is one creator God who made everything and rules over everything. F.F. Bruce writes, When the gospel was presented to pagans, even cultured pagans, like the members of the court of the Areopagus, it was necessary to begin with a statement about the living and true God. The knowledge of God, according to Paul in Romans 1, was accessible to all his works of creation, but the capacity or the desire to acquire it had been impaired by idolatry. And we saw how Paul was brokenhearted by that idolatry because he knew that it blinded them. And so he begins laying this foundation, much like what we saw him do in the synagogues, letting that foundation sit so they understand who God is and who they are. And from there he can begin to unfold, to explain, to reason, and then proclaim the good news to them. Paul uses the biblical ideas and the language, even though he's not using quotes. If we had time, we could go back through his speech and look to find the corresponding places in Scripture where he got the ideas that he's referencing. Paul was speaking biblically. Now, when we quote Scripture, that of course is speaking biblically because we're quoting Scripture. But we can also speak biblically in a way that is consistent with Scripture without necessarily quoting Scripture. And what this requires is a great deal of study, of wisdom, of understanding. And we see Paul do this, and this is held up as an example for many. Paul does a great, a great job of this, and it's, a, it's, it's something that we, I think, should strive toward. To be able to speak to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family in a way that if they have no biblical knowledge, and we're getting to that place in our society where there is less and less biblical literacy in our culture, that we need to learn to speak this way. To be able to speak without necessarily referring to exact passages of Scripture that people may know and respect. We may have to build that platform before we can even get to the gospel so that people know who God is at all, because so many people don't. Bruce goes on to say, his argument is firmly based on biblical revelation. It echoes throughout the thought and at times the very language of the Old Testament. Like biblical revelation itself, his argument begins with God, the creator of all, and ends with God, the judge of all. And at coming to judgment then, Paul calls them to repentance. He explains that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who God has appointed That the days of ignorance God has passed over, those days are gone, the kingdom has now come, the king has come, and he has been appointed to judge all. And he calls them to repentance. And he says he's been affirmed as the one who will judge all by his resurrection from the dead. Well, as soon as he mentions resurrection, you can see their reaction, they begin to mock him. This is something they didn't believe in, didn't think it happened, it sounded nutty to them. 
Is that something we can relate to in our day and time? Of course. They didn't believe. Others asked to hear more, and then some did believe. And so in its own ways, Athens was turned upside down. Philosophies were challenged. Ignorance was exposed. Truth and reason were unveiled. And judgment and accountability were announced. And those Athenians who heard these words had to wrestle with those things. The Word of God is no less powerful in our day. We need to know it. We need to be able to proclaim it. We need to be able to speak biblically, to be able to unfold it, to open it up with people, to reason with people from the Scriptures. There's a campus minister, I don't know him, his name was Daniel Dink, but he wrote the following kind of paraphrase, modern paraphrase of this sermon of Paul's. Something that I think we can relate to. Men and women of the university, he writes, I see that in every way you are very religious. As I walked around the university, I observed carefully your objects of worship. I saw your altar called the stadium where many of you worship the sports deity. I saw the science building where many, many placed their faith for salvation of mankind. I found an altar to the fine arts where artistic expression and performance seemed to reign supreme without subservience to any greater power. I walked through your residence halls and observed your lustful posters and beer can pyramids. Yet as I walked with some of you and saw the emptiness in your eyes and sensed the aching in your hearts, I perceived that in your heart is yet another altar, an altar to the unknown God who you suspect may be there. You have a sense that there is something more than these humanistic and self-indulgent gods. What you long for is something unknown. I want to declare to you now. Are we prepared to do that? It's a little dated in its language, but you get the idea. How can you relate to people to unfold biblical truth? Because that unknown longing in each person's heart is designed to point them to the Savior. In each of these cities, we see the world turned upside down. But as I said in the beginning, this wasn't due to the strategies and the plans of Paul and his missionary team. These missionaries were simply faithful to the task that was given to them. They proclaimed the word to announce the good news. They trusted the word not to return void. And they witnessed the power of the word. And you remember, Jesus Christ was called the word in John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. They witnessed the power of Jesus himself to save his people from their sins. We may never be accused of turning the world upside down, and and that's okay. Let's not worry about being accused of that. But rather, let's, if we're accused of anything, let's be accused of trusting the one who does turn the world upside down. Let us trust in Jesus and rest in him, not only in his saving work at our justification, but his ongoing work of sanctifying each one of our hearts. Let's trust him in his redeeming work, where he's saving his people, but he's also redeeming the world around us, where he's not only leading his sheep who know his voice and obey his voice and follow him, but he's also going to make the world new and whole. Let's trust him for his kingly reign in the directing of our steps, in the ruling of our lives, in the providing for our needs. And let's trust him and believe his word. Letting the word of Christ dwell in our hearts richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Let's pray. 
Lord, I do thank you for your word, and I thank you for the power that it is moving in our hearts, not only to direct us to salvation, not only to show us who you are and to to teach us of your ways, but Lord, to empower us to carry out the work of your kingdom. Because it's not our strategies, it's not our ideas, it's not our ways and our plans that we come up with that build your church, but it's you that do it through the means of your word, through your people. And so I pray that you would make Christ the King, a people who know your word, who love your word, who study it, who let it dwell richly within our hearts, so that we can then go out, that living waters, rivers of living water, would flow from our hearts. Not only with each other, but in the world around us, that the world indeed might be turned upside down. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.